Hey guys, I'm Chris. Happy holidays, everybody. I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And as always, per holiday tradition, we are bringing you some some Christmas-oriented films to discuss. That's right. We are continuing the horror adjacency from the previous month with our gateway horror, mm-hmm. uh, which we've been doing the last couple of years. And uh, following that horror adjacency into more adulthood with the Christmas-themed, or at least the beginning and the end, mm-hmm. The Green Knight. The Green Knight. Since we watched this movie, what, like last summer for the first time? No, two summers ago. Something like that. Yeah. I feel like you have been waiting, awaiting this moment. Yes, this movie has rocketed up into my like top 10 favorite films of all time sure. list. Mm-hmm. And I probably am a little biased, similar to your Dream Warriors. Yes. But, you know. It happens with the film. We'll see. You're just going to have to call me out as we go. Nah, it's okay. Everyone needs their moment to like... Just really spooch all over a movie. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying to come at it from a from a journalistic, critical point of view. A highfalutin point of view, if you will. <laughs> highfalutin. I do know that, so we watched this movie for the first time, Chris and I, and it was like several weeks later, Chris was still talking about it and mm-hmm. just like peeling the layers of that is the Green Knight. And I knew that one day, one day on this podcast... We would be having a discussion about it. I know it's kind of your Christmas present to me because usually we don't do films within like five years of their release. Yeah. But thank you for allowing us to do this deep dive. It means a lot to me. Yeah. We've made some exceptions this year, even with Prey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I love fucking Prey. <laughs> when movies are good, it, you don't have to wait to talk about them. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, let's get started. The Green Knight is a 2021 epic medieval fantasy film directed written and edited and produced by david lowry adapted from the 14th century poem sir gawain and the green knight film stars dev patel as gawain who sets out on a journey to test his courage and face the green knight it also stars alicia vikander joel edgerton sarita chowdhury and sean harris along with ralph innocent the film score was composed by daniel hart The Green Knight was an early casualty of the COVID pandemic, with its premiere and release date pushed back more than a year because of the cancellation of film festivals and the closure of theaters. The film received acclaim from critics for its cinematography, music, acting, particularly Patel's, production values, and Lowry's originality in his direction and writing. Okay, listeners, tell us a tale of yourselves so that we might know thee. This is The Green Knight. Friends, brothers and sisters, who can regale me and my queen with some myth? Or tale? Thank you. 
to seek him out? Was it not just a game? Perhaps. But it is not complete. You'll find no mercy. No happy end. Why do you stop me? Near doom is at hand. You rest your bones. I'll finish your quest for you. And what do you hope to gain? From facing all of this. Honor. That is why Knight does what he does. Are you ready? On Christmas morn, Gawain, played by Dev Patel, is awakened in a brothel by his lover, a common woman named Essel, played by Alicia Vikander. He returns to the king's court, where he is scolded by his mother, Morgana Le Fay, played by Sarita Chaudhry. Gawain attends a feast at the round table with his uncle, King Arthur, played by Sean Harris, who invites Gawain to sit at his right hand during Christmas court at the round table, even though he has yet to acquire a chivalric story to tell of himself the mark of a true knight. Elsewhere, within a strange tower, Gawain's mother performs a magic ritual that summons the mysterious creature known as the Green Knight, played by Ralph Ennison. He barges into the king's court under the pretense of peace and states that any knight who lands a blow on him will win his great green axe, but must travel to the green chapel and receive an equal blow in return on the following Christmas, one year hence. Desperate for a chance for approval, Gawain takes up the challenge. The Green Knight unexpectedly yields, and Gawain, wielding the king's sword Excalibur, decapitates him. The knight inexplicably rises, retrieves his severed head, repeats the requisite date to Gawain, and rides away. The knights of the round table applaud his bravery. Gawain lives off the story of his deed in Christmas court and revels in it all year long. One morning, after Gawain drunkenly makes his way home from reveling, he finds that the king has been waiting for him, and reminds him to uphold his side of the Green Knight's challenge as time draws near. Gawain reluctantly departs on horseback for the Green Chapel. He takes the green axe, and he wears a green belt given to him by his mother and her merry band of witches. (laughs) She says that as long as he wears it, he shall suffer no harm. On his journey, he crosses a battlefield littered with dead warriors, where he meets a scavenging boy, played by Barry Keegan. The boy directs Gawain to a stream that leads to the Green Chapel and requests payment for his directions. Gawain flips him a single coin. Shortly afterward, the boy and two others ambush Gawain and steal the axe, belt, and horse, leaving Gawain tied up. After seeing a vision of his own death, he panics and crawls to his sword and uses it to cut himself free before pursuing the thieves in vain. At nightfall, Gawain arrives at an abandoned cottage and falls asleep in the bed. He is awakened by the lady of the house, a young woman named Winifred, played by Erin Kellerman, who asks him to retrieve something precious to her that she has lost in a nearby spring. He asks what he will receive in return, to which she scolds him for even asking, as a knight should never ask such a thing. 
At the bottom of the spring, he finds her skull and reunites it with her skeletal remains. The next morning, he finds that he has indeed been rewarded. The axe has been returned to him. Gawain befriends a strangely tame fox who accompanies him on his journey. Making their way through the vast and wild landscape, they encounter a group of giants who Gawain asks to ride to hasten his journey, but when one reaches out to grab him, he recoils in fear. The giants move on and disappear into the misty horizon. Mm. At, n- <laughs> At night, Gawain and the fox reach a castle inhabited by a strange lord who informs him that the green chapel is nearby and invites Gawain to stay until closer to Christmas. The lord's lady resembles Essel. She makes seductive moves toward Gawain as she shows him her vast collection of books and a strange new method of portraiture. Why'd you look at that word? Portraiture. Share portraiture. The Lord and Gawain agree that the Lord will trade any prize for his hunt for whatever Gawain receives at the castle. The next morning, the lady presents Gawain with a protective green belt, which she claims to have made herself, though it looks to be the exact belt given to him by his mother that he lost to the thieves days earlier. In exchange for the belt, Gawain gets a medieval handy, but stains the girdle in the process with his mangrave. <laughs> when the lady smugly tells him that he is no knight, Gawain hurriedly flees the castle, but before he leaves the castle grounds, he encounters the lord in the forest who judges Gawain for leaving him without giving him what he is owed, whatever Gawain has received at the castle. Gawain plays dumb about the lady's handy. The lord knows better and gives Gawain a small but meaningful kiss on the lips. The Lord reveals that he has captured Gawain's fox on his hunt and releases it to Gawain. Eventually, Gawain reaches a stream where a boat is waiting. The fox speaks to Gawain, imploring him to turn back, implying that he has gone far enough and achieved what he needed to achieve. Determined to continue on, Gawain chases off the fox and takes the boat to the chapel where the knight sits in hibernation for Christmas Day. Gawain waits through the night for the Green Knight to awaken on Christmas morning. The Green Knight awakens and is pleased that Gawain has honored the game. The Green Knight swings the axe, but Gawain flinches. He kneels for the blow again, but at the last moment, he scrambles away. He flees back to the king's court triumphantly, and after his uncle King Arthur's death becomes king. Essel bears him a son, but Gawain abandons her, takes the child, and marries a noblewoman instead. As war begins, his son comes of age and ultimately dies in battle. Years later, Gawain has become a reviled king whose castle is under siege and his family abandons him one by one, including his mother. Filled with hatred and regret, he finally removes the green belt which he had worn low these many years, prompting his head to fall from his shoulders and die. Gawain awakens in the present inside the green chapel, He kneels and removes the belt and tells the knight that he is ready. The knight gently praises Gawain for his bravery and says, Now, off with your head, while smiling kindly. Later, a little girl picks up Gawain's crown and playfully places it on her head. The end. (laughs) I thought that was the alternate universe. That makes no sense. Most people don't know it has an end credits. I did not. I didn't the first two times I watched it. 
<laughs> How did you find out? I read about it. <laughs> oh, okay. I was just like, did you just decide one time? What the end the credit? Credits? I was like following you to like, what the end credit sequence means. It's like, what? It's not a fucking Marvel movie. What the fuck is this? The fuck? What in the Tiffany Amber Thiessen is this? And so instead of just watching the end credit sequence, you decided to watch the entire movie all the way through to the end credit sequence? This is my fifth time watching it. At, apparently. In just a very short amount of time. That's amazing. Well, three years. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot in three years. It's pretty, it's very impressive. Yeah. I saw it. Once and then I, I wasn't quite sure what to think of it because it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, right. Same. And we'll get into that oh, for sure. The Green Knight was released on July 30th, 2021, on more than 2,700 screens. It outperformed opening weekend expectations and brought in 6.7 million, landing the number three spot at the box office. Other films in the top ten that weekend included Jungle Cruise. Space Jam, A New Legacy, and Boss Baby 2. <laughs> this is the kind of rubbish that we were given when theaters first opened after the, you know, like when they could during the pandemic. Yeah. My good lord. Box office dollars would sharply fall for the film and it would be completely out of the top 10 by its fourth week in release, but it would continue to make money overseas with day and date VOD releases. Ultimately, the film would gross $18.8 million against a budget of $15 million. Which to me means flop. But in pandemic dollars? Yeah, I don't know. And who knows how they're counting things with streaming and, and yeah. you know, Blu-ray now and everything else. I mean, it took a while for this movie to even be released for us to, like, rent at home. A lot of cinephiles are into this movie, and so they're all buying this on, you know, Blu-ray and 4K and everything, so... Well, and I feel like I've read somewhere that, like, the the director and producers of this film, and A24 especially, were like, no, we don't want to just release this movie. It needs to be seen in the theater, so we're going to yeah. hold on to it. Oh, to- totally, yeah. yeah. The Green Knight has an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified friche. The audience score sits at 50%, though. The site's consensus reads, quote, The Green Knight honors and deconstructs its source material in equal measure, producing an absorbing adventure that casts a fantastical spell. Metacritic assigned the film a weighted average score of 85 out of 100, based on 56 credits, indicating, quote, universal acclaim. Audiences pulled on CinemaScore gave the film an average grade of C+. So this is a critical darling, but not so much an audience one, partially because of how it was marketed, I believe. A hundred percent. Because I think both of us thought we were going into a movie that turned out to be much different when we watched it. Yeah. You know, just kind of like we, uh, you know, would have expected or people probably would expect from uh, The 13th Warrior or something. Mm -hmm. And then it's like The 13th Warrior, you have those expectations and you get, you know, whatever 13th Warrior was. Then you go into this and you get something that's way better than you thought it was going to be. Way more highbrow, at least. Super more highbrow than I was expecting. Because, I mean, if we look back, we covered this movie or the trailer on A Shooting the Flames, right? Mm -hmm. And we're looking forward to it then. And then, you know, we waited to see it. So I think we were expecting something based on what the trailer had given us. Yeah. Brian Tillerko of RogerEbert.com gave the film four out of four stars, describing the film as one of the most memorable films of the year. A fascinating swirl of masculinity. Good God. (laughs) Temptation, heroism, and religion. Adding, it's a film that embeds the concept of storytelling and performance into its narrative, while also weaving its own enchanting spell on audiences. John Nugent of Empire gave the film a score of 5 out of 5 stars, describing it as a rivetingly weird and exceptionally beautiful fantasy film that offers no easy answers but ponders the biggest questions. Yes. Mm -hmm. Love that. And wrote that the film was 
revisionist fantasy, doing for the genre what the likes of Robert Altman's or Alejandro Jodorowsky's did with the revisionist westerns, bringing an avant-garde flair and ambiguous morality to a previously occasionally cheesy and childlike world. I don't know if I agree with that from a technical standpoint. I feel like a revisionist would be more like an adaptation. Yeah. In this sense. Good, and they make that perfectly clear in the opening credits. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, Keith Watson of Slant Magazine gave the film a score of 2.5 out of four stars, describing it as, quote, a self-consciously revisionist take on Camelot lore, and wrote that the film smooths out the enduring mysteries, opaque psychology, and narrative idiosyncrasies of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, resulting in a work that's only superficially more daring and enigmatic than its source material. I don't know. I feel like the source material is a little bit more shallow. The source material is also very straightforward. Yeah, and I mean, like most things of that time period. Yeah, it wasn't concerned with his characters. None of those stories were. It was concerned with a moral lesson. Exactly. This one is a little bit more. I mean, it's a tale about chivalry and whatnot and like the discovery of it. But like, and I make no, like, I won't hide this, that whenever I was studying literature in college, like just medieval stuff like this was never... My no, you hated day. Beowulf and you yeah, hated yeah. anything from this like time period was like such a slog for me to get through and any discussion about it. Like Me too. I, I loved the idea of them. Of course. And then when I actually got to reading them, I was just like, what the fuck? So fucking boring I mean, dry I, and you know. I would just rather watch the movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like I just maybe it's a language thing, I don't know. But like just like I took the history of British literature and we had to read this for that course. It was the one time that I've read like this poem in its entirety, mm-hmm. and I was just like, oh, Lord, can we move on to the next thing? Right. Watching the movie is completely different. Uh, it does have accolades at the Saturn Awards. It was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, but it did lose to Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yeah. That's a big leap in time. Mm-hmm. So they had to space that out because of the pandy. Mm. Uh, at the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, it was nominated for Best Creature Effects, but it lost to Psycho Gorman. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I'd love to see Psycho Gorman versus the Green Knight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the Golden Schmoes, it was nominated for trippiest movie of the year, but lost to Last Night in Soho. Uh, most underrated movie of the year, but lost to Nobody. I kind of agree with both of those. Yeah, I thought you would like that. Although I'd, I'd say Green Knight is probably trippier than Last Night in Soho. Um, at the, uh, yeah, I would definitely say that. At the North Texas Film Critics Association, it was nominated for Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor for Barry Keegan, who was barely in the movie, and won Best Picture. Yeah, I think people are mentioning him just because he's such a big actor now, and he's up for like a whole bunch of awards, including, I think, uh, an Oscar at this point. Was he? I think so, maybe. Hmm. But also, I think we should point out that the director of this film hails from Dallas. Yeah, he went to Irving High School. So the North Texas Film Critics Association kind of had to nominate him the the same hellmouth where we originally recorded our first episode that's right the very same hellmouth i wonder if he was nearby Hmm, probably Hmm. just thinking about this movie at that point yeah so i don't know how much i want to concentrate on things like cast uh or background so we could just like kind of move our way through it um i feel like dev patel is the obvious standout in this movie, he does exactly what he needs to do. He was cast very specifically, I think, age-wise, as well as to be endearing, right? He had to be a grown-ass man who had somehow be endearing without comedic. And so they really specifically got this guy who can do that. And I don't know of many other actors. I know plenty that could do it comedically. Yeah. Right? 
you know, but I, and, and some are a little older and some are a little younger, but I feel like Dev Patel is perfect in this role and not expected, you know, because you wouldn't expect, you'd expect, you know, a, a, a whitewash frenzy for a medieval story set in England. And, you know, they would be historically right to do so most likely. Yeah. Right. But I love this. I love his casting. I do too. I think he's really, really good in this movie. And I feel like every time I see Dev Patel in film, I think that he's excellent for the most part. I think he's a really good actor that probably doesn't get enough work, but maybe he's just choosing on the parts that he picks. I don't even remember what else he's in. He was in Lion. Okay. Um, I think Nicole Kidman's also in that movie. Like it was really, really good. And is he not the main character from Slumdog Millionaire? I don't remember. I never saw it. Oh, well, he's really good in that movie. Okay. Uh, Alicia Vikander. And the first time I ever remember her was, of course, in uh, the AI movie that she was in that we loved so much. The first time director, Alex Garland. Alex Garland. Yes. Why can't I remember the name of that movie? Yes. She is also really good in just about everything that I see her in. She's won an Oscar at this point. Yeah. And I just, I really, really love her. And I feel like I appreciated her so much more on this particular watch. And also, I mean, unlike my co-host, this was the second time that I've seen this movie. So I watched it the first time with him and my second time with him. And we will probably get into uh, my my differences of opinion between the two viewings. Ex Machina. Ex Machina. Is the name of the movie. Thank you. Yes. Because I love that movie. She was so good in it. And I was just like, this needs to be her first Oscar nomination. And it wasn't. She had such a good monologue in this movie. Mm -hmm. But other than that, she doesn't have that much to do. But she just has a presence. Like, she's doing a lot of, like, body and face acting in this. She does so much. I really thought, like, give her an award for that uh, monologue. Yeah. You know, she was great in everything else, too. But uh, everything she's ever, ever, ever seen her do has been amazing. She's she's excellent. An excellent actress. And we have not seen the last of her. And she's done a lot of things at this point, right? Fucking Laura Croft. Uh, Really? Yeah. And, like, the latest Tomb Raider movie. I didn't know that. Uh, Sarita Chaudhry as um, Morgana Le Fay, or who was heavily eluded. I went ahead in the synopsis and named them Arthur Guinevere, Morgana Le Fay. Right. It's all obvious, right? And uh, I don't know her from, from anything else. I know Sean Harris as King Arthur. He was in a movie that we deep dove not too, too long ago. Which one? Covenant. He was one of the scientists that got oh. his face eaten. Uh, Sarita Chaudhry was really good in this movie too. She also has a really good presence. She does. I, I really appreciated her character a lot more on this viewing as well. Mm-hmm. Katie Dickey, we've talked about quite a bit in other movies. Right? Yeah. She was in Game of Thrones and yeah. she was in The Witch. The Witch. Um, she was just in Loki TV show. She's been in so many things lately. She had, was she a Harry Potter character? I assume so. No. Oh, well, that's Don't sad. Think so. <laughs> uh, neither was Ralph Ineson, although he was also in The Witch. That's right. He's a very distinctive voice. He's also in Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, so he, obviously, like, the, the Green Knight is, like, heavily CGI'd, right? At no. least that character. No. That's all practical all effects. Yep. My goodness. Yep. There was no CGI in that uh, roundtable scene. Oh, my God. It was all set extensions, and that's basically it. Wow. Look at you, Dan Lowry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ralph Ineson, like, as soon as you hear his voice, I'm just like, oh, it's Ralph Ineson. Joel Edgerton is randomly in this movie. He's in a lot of A24 movies. I don't really like him. I know. Never did. I don't know why. I like him in this movie. I'm indifferent to Joel Edgerton. He did a really good job in this movie because he was not playing Joel Edgerton to me. Yes. He's playing something very different. Although we have watched movies in the past and you have walked out of it and your biggest takeaway is stop trying to make Joel Edgerton happen. (laughs) (laughs) So 
Well, I he mean, was also like he was like the new Uncle Ben for the Star Wars prequels, <laughs> like, which I didn't randomly, see. Randomly, I'm like, how? Who is that? <laughs> who is this guy? And then like he uh, he just showed up in a bunch of other things. Like he was all of a sudden he was like playing Ramses, and a fucking what? yes, Ridley Scott uh, did a fucking Moses movie. And Joel Edgerton played Ramses. Joel fucking Edgerton. See, I think I don't dislike him or or like him because I just haven't seen a lot of movies with him in it. I think the one thing that I always remember him from is from like It Comes at Night. Yeah, and and whatever. That could have been anyone. Yeah. I mean, he was the guy from The Mist. You know what I mean? He w- I would rather have been the guy from The Mist. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm supremely indifferent. And yeah. I feel like, like the, this character or whatever is like, it, I don't know. It's just it's just the Lord is the Lord. Yeah. And yeah, then, it's and yeah, it's a plot device. And then Barry Kagan as the scavenger. Um, he's been in shit tons. He was just recently in the Dark Knight thing, Batman movie, the Batman. Oh, the Batman. Yeah. At the very end or whatever as the Joker. And he uh, has been in shit tons of other things more and more and more. He was like, kill the white stag or whatever with Colin Farrell. What the fuck that movie is? Song of a Sacred Deer. <laughs> yeah, Kill the Sacred Deer. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> Kill the White Stack. That sounds like a fucking gold frap song. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna kill a big white stack. <laughs> he's okay. I mean, like, again, like, he's barely in this movie, you know, but, like, apparently the North Texas Film Critics Association decided that That's he was... That's what he was. He was in another movie with Colin uh, Farrell, I think, and he was up for a, a supporting actor. Oh, yeah. It was um, the most recent one. Yeah, the top off my finger friendship. Movie. Yes, yes, that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we have Erin Kellerman as Lady Winfred, which is this is probably my favorite part of the movie. She made an impression. Yeah, she was funny. Ghost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, because she's so dry in it. She's like, why would you even ask that? <laughs> like, give my head. And I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> I mean, like, well, she's a spoopy. That's the spoopiest part of the movie. It really is. When you're like alone in that dark ass cottage. Hell yeah. Scary. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, it was announced in November 2018 that David Lowry would direct and write a modern retelling of the 14th century tale Sir Gawain, The Green Knight, with A24, along with Leyline Entertainment and Braun Studios set to finance. And of course, all of Hollywood was a buzz. Yeah. And I think, well, I don't know if that was. <laughs> I think everyone's just like, what? Because the, the movie he'd done previously had gotten some movement with, you know, the awards circuit a little bit, or at least some notoriety with critics with a ghost story. Yes. So, I mean, that was also an A24 movie. And uh, again, smartly by A24, marketed as something a little bit more horrific than He did something what it was. before that, or maybe in between, like uh, Old Man and a Gun or something like that, too, with Robert Redford. Uh, it's possible. The yeah. only thing I really know Pete's down Dragon. from is, <laughs> did he do Pizza Dragon? Yeah. I haven't seen the new one. I haven't either. I didn't see the original. And apparently he did a Peter Pan movie. Yeah. Peter Pan and Wendy, I think, was straight to streaming or something. Yeah, it's Disney a Disney Plus, Plus movie. Disney Plus. But I have seen a ghost story, and it's it's very, very good. Very, very dense and very, very weird, mm-hmm. you know? So I feel like when he's doing things that are, like, A24-centric, you know, they're probably really good and a good fit for him. I haven't seen some of these Disney things. But- well, Lowry really liked the old, like, uh, 70s and 80s fantasy films, especially Willow and Excalibur, which are two very different films. One's yeah. very Disney-esque, and one is much more, adult. you know, highbrow adults, you know, are trying to be, right? And so uh, I can see it both. I can see like, uh, you know, when they first meet Mad Mardigan with the skeleton and the, you know, 
the gibbet or whatever it's called Mm -hmm. on the road. That was definitely a call out to Willow. And then Excalibur is just like the tone is all over it. You know, other than that, I think that's about it. Cause David Lowry really likes to make himself some oniony movies, meaning like layers and layers. Yep, he does. And a ghost story is no exception. And so he was thinking about those movies and he was thinking about the original story and he was thinking about himself uh, as a coming of age, getting kind of pushed out of the house by his mother, you know, to try and start a life. And so he kind of put all of that and poured all of that into his movie here, as well as some other thoughts that he's been a little cagey on, but he's famously cagey about stuff. So we're going to dissect all of it. So I do want to go over some technical stuff, right? The look and feel. Uh, The cinematography by Andrew Palermo is uh, amazing. He also did movies like You Are Next, a ghost story, the TV show on Disney Plus called Moon Knight, which looked great. I think Your Next looked great. I thought it was a really, really good horror movie. I've never seen it. It's an amazing slasher movie, like like a kind of modern slasher. I've seen clips from a ghost story, and of course I've seen all of Moon Knight, so I know that he's a competent cinematographer, especially from seeing The Green Knight. Mm. Obviously, he should have been up for an Oscar for this, in my opinion, uh, for some of those landscapes, at least. If not, like the the round table is just excellently done, almost like a Barry Lyndon-style, you know, Kubrick or something listeners you may have noticed when we were talking about accolades for this film that the green knight was nominated for zero oscars and my best friend and co-host has never never been so angry at the academy as he was (laughs) that year (laughs) because he's right so many things in this movie are award worthy like from the art direction to the costumes to the cinematography and the acting and even the direction of this film like it was quite quite a snub not even nominations it's like insane like the practical effects alone you know the technical awards alone the prosthetics the green knight was completely prosthetics no cgi by barry gower and then there was limited cgi just you know which was done by weta who are no slouch we got set extensions you know the set designs uh, such as the scene at the round table like i've mentioned included hand painting and matte paintings to extend the set a technique lowry favor from films from the 80s and the 90s so there was no like they didn't have hallways and shit like that in the background and like some of the people standing back there were paintings. Are you serious? And if you're watching the movie and you're looking for it, you can see and it's that extension and it looks beautiful. I could not tell. It's seamless. Yes, exactly. And they did it all in camera. Okay. Yeah. The costumes. I love the costumes in this movie. I know. The costume designer Malgozia uh Transka drew upon South American designs when designing the crowns. Worn by Arthur and Guinevere, Lowry also felt the designs reinforced the saintly status of Arthur and Guinevere as representations of Christendom in the West. They certainly do. They are iconic, and they're on the poster for most of the covers of the DVDs and posters for this film. They are, and I feel like when you look at some medieval paintings of of Jesus Christ and and things like that, like it looks very similar they to those that. halos with the rays, and they yeah. bolted into the design, and it looks amazing. Which you wore as a Halloween costume. I did. I committed of cardboard and gold paint. <laughs> it was a really good costume. I liked our costumes that year. <laughs> They're on Instagram. Should you guys want to go to our account? Oh, yeah, you were Ripley, weren't you? I was Ripley. You had the little cat. I was I was holding Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Jonesy. So we were we were walking around dressed as Ripley and um You were Gawain? I was Gawain, yeah. Yeah. As King. I loved your crown though. You still have it, right? Yeah, I do. Good. Yeah, it's kind of like floppy now, but <laughs> that's okay. That's what happens to King's crowns over time. Right. Uh, or, yeah, sure. Less euphemisms. Anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not only just the, you know, the way it was shot. It was how it was shot. You know, uh, David Lowry himself obviously is no slouch. And I love the long shots. There's so many long, 
almost masturbatory shots in this movie. Like him, um, the one of the longest ones where I'm just like checking my watch a little bit is some walking away on horse or trotting away, I guess, on horse from Camelot. Mm-hmm. You see Camelot in the background, you're like, holy shit, this this is taking a while. And there's a lot of wonders in this movie. Him going across the field, even though there's a lot of dialogue happening, or him just crossing the landscape. There's a ton of really long shots. And here's a quote from David Lowry that I really, really love because I love those older you know, 80s movies and sci-fi and fantasy that really do that. In fact, that was one of my complaints from like Prometheus and Covenant that Ridley Scott didn't take the time that he did with establishing shots that he did in Alien, right? I love old Ridley Scott because he was not afraid to hold a shot. And he has gone on record saying, oh, uh, you know, the TikTok generation has no patience for that. And I'm like, fuck the TikTok generation. We want film, you know? And so this is what David Lowry had to say about that. He said, quote, I love the way a long uneventful take can take on a dreaminess of its own because your mind wanders and your mind begins to impose its own ideas on these shots when they last that long. I love nothing more than to have a shot that lasts so long you sort of drift away from it and think about other things in your life. And then you come back and the shot's still going on and you've brought something of yourself back to it. That's one of my favorite experiences in movie going and one that I try to provide opportunities for in my own work. I mean, that's a really good quote. And I kind of like the idea behind that, because when you're watching film, at least for myself, you will take some time to like think about what you've just seen, or you need some time to process parts of a movie, right? And I, I kind of feel like that's what he's doing that, you know, it, t- it gives you some, some time to like insert yourself in your own experience into film. So that's a really good way to look at shots like that. And yeah. I never really thought about it that way. And I love it from a, like a time passing standpoint. I love taking in the scene and taking in a setting, right? And that gives you kind of the flavor of what's happening in the movie a lot more, yeah. right? And it gives you more empathy to basically everyone in the movie, let alone your characters. But we're so used to this like staccato editing for good or bad, like let's say Michael Bay Transformers movie, it's like, we're in America. Oh my God, we have some exposition. Now we're in Pakistan. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and Mind your hands. Yeah. And so now, you know, you're watching Dev Patel kind of move through this landscape and you're able to take all of it in. And, and then you're like, hmm, did I leave the oven on? And you come back to the scene and you're like, oh shit, real time has passed for this character and this actor in real time. And they're mm-hmm. really serious about kind of anchoring us in this in this setting. And I think it only can serve the movie. Well, and in much like its source material, I mean, like this movie is a series of kind of like vignettes, right? That sort of like piece together the entire story, right? Yeah. And so like having moments like that just gives you some space and time between the, the next piece of action and, and plot. The music by Daniel Hart is amazing, right? So in film, mostly working with David Lowry was like Pete's Dragon, A Ghost Story, Old Man and Gun, Peter Pan and Wendy. That's all I could find for film was basically all, all his movies. Yeah. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe they were friends in like Irving or something. I don't know. Possibly. On TV, though, he did The Exorcist, The Society, and most recently, Interview with a Vampire, which is also an excellent score and almost reminiscent of the original from 1994. Well, and I watched the first season of The Exorcist and that was good. The music in that was great. So, and I like the music in this. Oh, well. man. It's one of my favorite film scores of all time. I have it on vinyl now. That's right. Yeah. I mean, if this movie, for me, I'm so musically based. Like, if this movie had a shit score, I probably would never have talked about it again. <laughs> any, and that goes for any movie. Poltergeist, Aliens, you know? That's but true. they all have such fantastic scores. 
And this one was really good. And I feel like I didn't quite notice it until this particular rewatch. In fact, I feel like there are a lot of things about this movie I didn't notice in, until this particular rewatch. And there's a bunch of sung songs too, right? And mm-hmm. they are all in the language of and original songs from this period. Oh, so they were yes, older songs. Oh, yeah. And if you listen to them, they're in Old English. I guess that's partly why it didn't get nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars. Probably not. <laughs> Although, the the Academy itself would have been like, oh no, we're not nominating that Well, song. some of them really reconstructed, and they should have gotten a fucking Oscar for that. And also, they had a full year to kind of perfect this movie. Mm-hmm. So, like, he came back and was editing it for a long time. And then this guy had enough time to come back and be like, no, I don't like this score, and threw the whole thing out and, like, started over again. You know, it's like, I really want the specific thing going on in this movie, and so was able to do it. So because of 2020, this movie is better than it would have normally been, as far as we know. Which, I mean, a lot of movies that were shelved during that time period, probably they should have taken note, you know what I mean? And gone back and, like, just made themselves a little bit better. Yeah. You know, if you got nothing else you can do, you can't film anything else. Like, some of these filmmakers and, like, craftspeople should have been like, hey, let's perfect while we can do it. Yeah, so. I think the I think the guy from Prey went back and started and just like tried to edit some scenes more perfect, perfectly and and do things like that and do some pickups and things like that. This is yet another score that was scrapped and then like started over, except this time it wasn't like at the behest of like. Yeah, I don't know that. It, I think maybe parts were scrapped, you know, that were like okay with and went back and just like, you know, like James Horner had one week to basically come up with the score for Aliens or something, you know, and then record it. You know, versus like, what would he have done, you know, if he had a whole year to do it? I don't know. Maybe, you know, sometimes when you're under the gun, you could, you make things better. But obviously in this case, I want to think that this person, you know, made something even better because every track is amazing. I, I listen to this uh, soundtrack in, in isolation all the time. So there's a lot of themes and meaning in this movie in the layers wrapped in to be mined. A lot of people probably get most of it, but I mean, maybe not the depth, right? At their first guess, they're just like, mm, maybe a lot of people that the 50% of people, in fact, might actually be still mad at it for ending the way it does and not quite understand why. I mean, I get some of the surface stuff, you know, but I, I think a lot of the things that you've talked to me about, like I just didn't get on that first watch at all. Well, I've lost track what's obvious and what's not because I've been thinking about this movie for three years. Right. So you're going to have to tell me what is amazing and what's stupid or what was obvious. (laughs) As we, as we go through, I'm sure that I will, but I, so let me preface this conversation by saying that the first time we watched the green (laughs) Knight, conversation was saying, sure, Jan, (laughs) sure, Jan. Uh, the first time that we watched the green Knight, it was the second movie and a night of a double feature. So we had watched what the movie. thinking? And then we started watching The Green Knight because we were so excited. We we're like, oh, The Green Knight. And then we started watching it. And listeners, I had had a gummy during that first movie. And so by the time we started this, I was a little bit stoned. And I was just like, huh? Mm. <laughs> but um, the second watch, I was just like, okay, I'm completely watching this in a sober state of mind. I think I had a seltzer or two while watching it. And I had a completely different experience. So, yeah, this movie does the the pot for you. Yes, perhaps <laughs> this is not a movie that will make it onto the top ten movies to watch in an intoxicated state. Yeah, whatever. there's nuance there on that list, so it's not as obvious as you think. No. All right, but let's get started. 
All right. So I think the best way to do this is actually to work our way through the story. I know that we try not to over synopsize, but I feel like the the layers will get unpacked as we go through this movie. Okay. And it'll also help us talk about the movie itself too, I think. So starting with that prologue, the narrator says, Look, see a world that holds more wonders than any since the earth was born. And of all who reigned or none had renown, like the boy who pulled sword from stone. But this is not that king, nor is this his son. Let me tell you instead a new tale, a lay it down as I've heard it told. Its letters set, its history pressed. Of an adventure brave and bold, forever set in heart, in stone, like all great myths of old. So while that's being said, it shows Gawain being crowned. Mm-hmm. And as the crown actually floats down and sits on his head, his head lights on fire. So that's obviously our foretelling, you know, of the rest of the whole fucking movie, essentially. Yeah. Yes. Right. It's, it's, it's the movie in a nutshell, really. It's quite the prologue, quite the preamble. It just like tells you this is what's going to happen. And that's just part of like medieval stories anyway. And that's probably the only symbolism in this whole fucking movie. His head catching on fire? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as far as like film symbolism, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, but that's just how these stories started. Even when you're reading them, they kind of tell you like, here's everything that's going to happen. Everything else is like metaphor and subtext. Yes. Even in like Shakespeare, though, like in Shakespeare's openings to most of his plays, he'll lay out like everything that's going to come before it. Well, the Capulets or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> or after it, you yeah. know, he's like, here it is. Now let's talk about it again. Where we lay our scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Favorona. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't, it's been a long time since I've read the original story. I don't know that there's a preamble like that. I'm sure it's just a couple stanzas, yeah. you know, but like it's not it's not anything like vast, but it, it does like set up like everything that's going to happen in the story. Or exactly. at least like the main takeaway. From and that. you already know, as soon as I saw that opening sequence, I was just like, okay, this is not the movie I thought it was going to be. I thought this was going to be a high fantasy action film, you know, that was a little quirky maybe. And parts yeah. of it are. Because of A24. Uh, but nowhere near as much as people really thought. And certainly based on some of those trailers that came out. Well, I feel like a lot of the quirkiness of this movie is included in like the introduction to everything, right? Mm-hmm. Especially like some of the those random title cards that pop up right mm-hmm. so i mean there, there's the a24 quirkiness and then like a lot of that quirkiness is sort of like left by the wayside after that and and we're really starting to get like from really beginning to end and more parts than others but this this uh first introductory part tells us more than the rest of the film does but if you're paying attention and you're wondering why we're looking at what we're, we're looking at there's a very intentional reason why everything is there on film Right. The mise-en-scene is very intentional or whatever. <laughs> right. And the first thing that we see after this intro is that there's a movie starting is Camelot, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. Looking uh, away from Camelot towards the city, the main city or the villages surrounding it. Right. And we see it's burning. Yep. And people are like getting the fuck out of Dodge and shit like that. Right. So Camelot's burning. People are leaving. But, you know, Christ is born. And uh, <laughs> we have Dev, and he is like just waking up, uh, you know, with with Essel, his essentially his prostitute, right? Uh, she for one of the first things she says to him is, "Are you a knight yet?" And of course, he, he has to say, "Not yet." And it adds tension immediately because we see Gawain isn't any spring chicken. 
He's obviously in his 30s, right? He's is not, he that old? Yeah. Okay. I think the original story is that he's supposed to be like just has come of age or somewhere around there, right? Mm-hmm. He is proving himself. But this guy's getting up there. He's in his 30s. He is supposed to have married and been with kids and stuff like that, right? That was intentional casting, right? And he's in a fucking whorehouse. Yeah. Sex work is real work, but you know, he is where he is. Yeah. And obviously a little drunk, right? Mm-hmm. Still drunk from the night before because he's stumbling and like running around and everything like that. Like, so, I mean, I, I didn't realize that he was in his 30s. I thought he was maybe like mid to late 20s or whatever. There's not much difference from that. But it's, it is obvious that he should be like not gallivanting around as he is. So that's our introduction to this character. And then finally he gets home, right? And like his mom is like, you know, who we of course learn a little bit later is in fact Morgana Le Fay, you know, which famously sorceress. Obviously her disapproval, you know, and he asks her, are you going to Christmas court? I've been invited to Christmas court with uncle, which is of course King Arthur, mm-hmm. you know, uh, her brother or half brother, however you want to say it, depending on the legends. And uh, she says she has no mood for merriment, but obviously she's probably telling the truth, but she's lying because she has shit to do, as Mm -hmm. we learn, right? This is a very different look at Arthur and Guinevere. Uh, You can tell they're getting up there. They look a little sickly. Much different from like any other movie. Like anytime you ever talk about or see King Arthur, it is sort of like in his prime. The only movie that I can really think about where he was portrayed less virile is like First Night. Yeah, it was Sean fucking Connery. Right. He was still like big and meaty and taller than Richard Gere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and still like has a like a presence, you know, and this this guy is just like he really is kind of like invalid status. Yeah, they are yeah. very fragile mm-hmm. looking. They're, you know, in a kind of a state almost like Camelot, where it's kind of like falling apart a little bit, right? And he says, I've never held you on my knee. You know, I never uh, invited you into my company, but I regret that. And this Christmas, let it happen. And of course, uh, Gawain, who has these his own ideas of what a knight is, says, I have no place next to you. And they say, we know, but let it be Christmas, essentially, right? Yeah. And then they ask, tell me a tale of yourself so that I might know thee. And of course, he says he doesn't have a tale. And Guinevere says, not yet, right? This is the beginning of the pressure that he feels. And they ask him what he sees around him. And he says, legends. And then Guinevere tells him, do not take your place amongst them idly. That's a big pressure hit, right? Mm. So it's like, you belong here. We want you here. And this is what you have to do to, to get here and stay here, right? And so they're basically positioning him into kind of an impossible situation that he obviously doesn't deserve. No. And doesn't feel natural to. He certainly hasn't earned it. Yeah. I mean, he just ran home with no boots on in the snow. And really looking around you, like, what is there to earn, right? And all of this court is juxtaposed with Morgana's spell. And this particular scene actually took Lowry over a year to edit, by the way. The spell part? Yeah. To all interlock it, just like perfectly with the timing and the music and everything to make it all seem to where the whole ritual could be done and you see the writing mm-hmm. and everything else as soon as Arthur ends his speech and she does that and just to get it perfect the way he wanted and the green knight enter you're oh my god but you're right though because all the acting too like lips had to move just perfectly and really everything had to be edited just perfectly yeah that's amazing so with the ritual she's either invoking or she's conjuring the green knight i don't know if she's creating him or just like invoking him I don't know. I don't care. It just, it's not really important. Yeah. And you even see, she's like automatic writing. 
Something like that. Yeah. Oh, you're just like when you know, she you has her blindfold. Yeah. yeah. And she says, Oh, greatest of Kings or whatever. And then the note starts uh, floating. And it took me a while to actually kind of recognize those letters <laughs> because it's kind of old Englishy kind of font, but yeah, even down to his script, the green knight is saying. And so all of this is being, is being controlled by Gawain's mother to give him an opportunity. Obviously parts of this scene. I really, really like, right. I mean, just, just the look of it for the most part. Cause I was like sort of taken aback by like just one character. I think is, is it her daughter, like his sister, like coming in, right. Carrying something. And then there's other women involved in it. And yeah. So the mother has three, witch underlings, a coven. Yeah. So it's basically her coven. Okay. And then my favorite part of this is when Guinevere speaks, right? Yeah. With the voice of the, you know, of the green knight, as well as something else underneath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just all really works. No, it's a, it's a great scene. Like the anatomy of the scene is, is, is amazing. If we were going to do that still, that's the scene of the, from this movie that we probably would. Cause it's just like an editing Marvel. It really is. Right. And so, uh, we start to think about another theme in this movie, which is like, um, man versus nature, right? We have several, uh, and one big monologue kind of about that, right? The green knight, uh, and his depiction is like a, a big tree-like creature, you know, that kind of depicts nature and paganism invading that sanctum of the round table in Arthur's kingdom, maybe symbolizing everything that Arthur kind of fought to overcome. This is further emphasized by Lowry's decision to portray Arthur and Guinevere as sickly, alluding that there's wanting control of the civilization they represent, of course, compounded by the fires and shit that we saw when people like leaving Dodge on Christmas day. Well, and also, I mean, they're sickly and not long for this world, they're going to be returning from returning to the earth. Right. In older stories also connected Arthur's health to the land, which is also interesting. So we're kind of also laying the mantle of all these other Arthurian legends that we've gotten or digested over the years on top of this. And I think that's very intentional from Lowry as well to not have to, you know, to use that as a shorthand. I was also wondering about Merlin here because it shows Merlin and it shows that he's like kind of using some sort of magical power to kind of see what the fuck's going on with the Green Knight. He looks over at Arthur. Arthur's looking at him already and shakes his head. And then Arthur addresses the Green Knight. I don't know what was happening there, but it's it's showing that Merlin exists in the story and showing that Merlin is still a magical person in this story. And I, it also shows kind of the hypocrisy of the, of the court a little bit because Merlin has all these fucking like pagan runes on his face, mm-hmm. but everything else is uh, Christian. Super Christian. I know. I noticed that on this watch as Christ well. <laughs> I mean, cause they, everything is all about like, like Christianity and celebrating Christmas and that sort of time period. And I mean, you know that like Christianity is not like brand new just then, although it took like forever for like yeah. sections of paganism to sort of like be taken out. I think Arthur is supposed to be like a thousand to 1200 or something. 80. Yeah. Well, it's still a long time. Yeah. Right. To, to start working on a religion. And yeah. I think that we all, years, yeah. <laughs> everyone's seen that one crazy documentary. They talk about like how, how paganism sort of like, intersects Christianity or they, they made it possible to like convert all these people certain holidays and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 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 So, but like all the things that are like drawn onto his face and I always just assumed, or at least I assumed on this watch that he was saying some sort of spell to see whether or not this guy was actually a threat. You know what I mean? I feel like Merlin at this point allowed him to come into court and like do what he needed to do because he didn't think, or he knew that he wasn't going to do any real harm to the King or anybody in that court. Yeah. Essentially. So then we have the game, right? This is the when the Green Knight comes and says, I'm going to, you know, come to the court, 
not seeking out Gawain, at least from his perspective, obviously from Morgana's perspective, it's for, <laughs> for Gawain. So the Green Knight says, you're going to strike me. And then a year, I'm going to give you the exact same blowback a year from now. And the prize is you get to keep my axe, right? Pretty fucking straightforward. I feel like anyone with like a head on their shoulders or, you know, ears to fucking listen would do like the, the scratch on the check or whatever they say, you know, or like, right. I'm going to give you a hangnail. I don't fucking know. <laughs> I'm going to step on your toe, you know, uh, come on. Something super easy. You yeah. Know what I mean, paper cut. Who has paper? But I think they were all just like, okay, this is this is essentially nature coming in here of all places, the sacred, holy round table and challenging us to a game. We don't understand. We don't care, you know, what all your woke, green, earthy bullshit is. <laughs> I don't know. And then completely ignore it. Right. And so he bows to Gawain. As soon as Gawain shows up and says, I'm the challenger, essentially, which was, of course, by design, mm-hmm. he lowers his head in deference you know, or fellowship. And Gawain sees it as an emasculating trick and yells at him to stand and face him to be an honorable knight to Gawain. He has to pit his masculinity against another's and ultimately dominate them. He's confused and his eyes keep darting around the room for guidance, validation, or any kind of approval. He doesn't know what to fucking do. And so finally he says, you know, never forget what happened here on Christmas day. And he swings the fucking sword and decapitates the guy. Well, and he, I mean, so this is his time, right? And also like, no one stands up or does anything also because he's already called them all legends and they have nothing to prove anyway. And you'd expect Arthur to like facepalm or someone in the room to fucking facepalm be like, okay, well now you're fucking dead in a year, you know, or something, you know, but they don't because they don't believe in this thing. They don't have, you know, and so of course it rises inexplicably and says one year Henson rides away. He's looking around for approval, especially to Arthur after the green Knight leaves, I guess. And they all clap. Except for Arthur, who gives back the sword to, you know. But I'm wondering, after some retrospection, you know, if the Green Knight was under his own at, at all, if he was just like his own thing that Morgana just moved the fates around to kind of place at the right place in time versus actually controlling and puppeting, I don't know. I don't care. Was this test actually meant for the kingdom? You know, is this a kingdom of chivalry and principle, as they've said, or is it one of violence and death? And they all especially Gawain, fail utterly in that test. And I'm wondering if Gawain himself is just symbolic of the fruits of the society in general. I mean, it's possible. I mean, even like Arthur became king for a feat, right? Yeah, monarchy sucks. So, I mean, <laughs> like he didn't he didn't deserve the, the role that he got. He, he pulled a sword. Well, staff. they're trying to say prophetically, this is the one that is meant to by God, you know, is the one that gets to pull the sword out of the stone. And he didn't do so out of his own ambition. That's the legend. Yes. At least from Disney. (laughs) And I really enjoy that cartoon. (laughs) Right? And the same thing in Excalibur, you know, which is obviously has something to do with this movie. But, you know, during that time, you know, where they're waiting, you know, Arthur comes to visit after he comes home drunk, who's been, he's been reveling all year on this like building legend, Mm -hmm. you know, and his mother's there, of course, in the background, which is always a presence. And he's pressured. By Arthur to go on the quest. He wasn't going to go. He was just going to ignore it. Like, why would I go? Why would I show up to get decapitated? The more he probably thought about it, you know, because they were playing games in the street and puppeteers were showing that yeah. Gawain's going to get decapitated at the end of the year. That's part of his celebrity. I mean, so everyone knows what's going to happen, I yeah. mean, obviously, but like at the end, I mean, he is just a celebrity and he's, he's reveling in that yeah. and for like, better or worse. Yeah. You don't have to do anything else. I've already earned what I needed to earn. He's a worse person than he was before it. 
Yes. That's essentially what's happened. Completely. Just like anybody who becomes a celebrity sometimes and it goes to their head a little bit. Yeah. I mean, my Lord, we could look at any person in Hollywood sometimes. And so Gawain says, was it not just a game? You know, and Arthur, who's having an inexplicable, you know, toothache, which I actually love in the movie, randomly. My two-thirds. He says, perhaps, but it's not over yet. And then there's a beat, and he says, is it wrong to want greatness for you? You know, and that's such an interesting line. And I I see where Arthur's coming from. He really wants to kind of push him out of the nest and see him fly. You know, and he's doing this kind of under the pretense and maybe even control of of his mother. Yeah. You know, who's Morgana Le Fay. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of pressure there because the movie could have ended there if Arthur hadn't said anything, you know, but he does. And so his mother, you know, gives him the belt or the girdle. I hate that fucking word. So we're just going to say belt. They really call it a girdle. They call it a girdle. God. A girdle. And she said, I promise you shall not come to harm as long as you, as you wear this. Another crutch. And then he meets the person, the only reasonable person in this whole fucking movie, which is Essel, the whore, right? Yeah. And uh, like what we're, what we notice is like the only non-elevated person. Everyone else is kind of like at this higher, you know, high fantasy level or something, you know. And she says, you know, they're talking about the quest that he has to go on because he has to prepare to go. And she said, this is how silly men perish. And he says, or how brave men become great. And she says, why greatness? Why is goodness not enough? And that's kind of the whole point of this movie. It's my favorite line in this movie. Like when we were watching it the other night, I was sort of taken aback by that line. And I was like, okay, this really sums everything up. Like everything. Like just be satisfied with what you have. You don't have to aspire to anything more. You know, you didn't have to do anything that you've already done. And it doesn't matter who thinks that you're, you're great or good. You're just one person thinks you're great. That should be enough. It's almost like in this movie, greatness is what it is today. It's like celebrity. It's like a status. It's like, um, great is a, you know, an epic version of good, but without actually any moral compass. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so it begins, right? He has to go on this quest and he's walking away from Camelot and it's this fucking wasteland. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> there's like skeletons hanging on gibbets and there's like nothing the the, the land has been like farmed to oblivion mm-hmm. and you know or i don't know what those burned. kids are doing yeah yeah and it's just like that's another clue right it's like this is a land in decline this is a kingdom in decline they're the rulers are in decline and literally dying before our eyes you know and so it's just like maybe we're not you know ascribing the value to camelot that we should be you know or maybe we shouldn't have ascribed that value to begin with. That's Yes, exactly. Sorry, you said it way better than me. <laughs> uh, this is where the movie starts to really work hard to keep audiences at our arm's length. And so Gawain himself is just like a small insignificant piece, you know, or puzzle piece lost in his own story. If it hadn't already, this is where the film really starts to get dense in like show versus tell, right? And this is also where we kick off the virtues theme in this movie, which is uh, religiously... The Knight's Pentacles, five points that you see all over the, that's the only non-Christian or even like, I guess, old school Christian, if you think about it, uh, symbolism in this movie. And you saw it all over the the round table, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the five points, they've been known to represent the five wounds of Christ or symbolize the Star of Bethlehem, the five virtues of knighthood, which are the virtues, generosity, courtesy, chastity, fellowship, and piety. And this is the first one, generosity, right? He's taking directions from this scavenger without payment. He's just like entitled to it, right? And so, of course, he doesn't offer payment. He gets he has to, you know, pay the consequences, essentially. Not to say he wasn't going to get robbed no matter what, 
but it's still like the first instance of him just expecting help along the way also we get to see that fucking like war scene <laughs> right outside of fucking camelot you know with all the dead people yeah there's a really really long one shot of all the dead people this huge battlefield which he's just riding through she's just riding through yeah he's just like oh and there are people just picking the dead you know well he's got a fucking girdle you know what i mean so like he doesn't have to worry about it obviously he's just like sex yeah. to be y'all girdleless and shit i don't know that he even believes in the girdle I think that he would believe in whatever he thought would keep him safe or whatever, whatever he thought would protect him. If someone came up and be like, you know what? You need to go. You need this to go with the girdle or like no girdle is good without a cummerbund over it. Like, except that Christianity doesn't seem to help him much within the first five minutes of this story, because the first thing they do is the shield. That's wonderfully painted by the way, with like the mother Mary or whatever that they put the, the holy water, holy water on is, Instantly broken. They steal his sash immediately. Mm-hmm. The axe is gone and his horse is gone. Right? And that's we when we get like he's tied up and we get that first kind of like trippiness of the movie where the camera kind of goes around. We see kind of the seasons changing slowly, subtly, come back to his bleached bones. Mm-hmm. And so it's like his first vision, uh, either his imaginings of him dying or depending on who you are as a viewer – the first time where magic kind of puts things back on the path that they're supposed to be on. Well, I mean, cause this character, at least everything we've seen about him up until this point is like, he, he will do anything to not die. He will do anything to have fame and have everything he feels like he's supposed to have or is entitled to without any work. And he ultimately doesn't want to perish. You know, he just wants to, to have it. Yeah. Right. And so like, yeah, he's freaked out because these people are taking his things, but it's not until he thinks about like what would happen if he just laid there until help came along or whatever that he's like, maybe I should free myself. And also, why didn't they take the sword? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they took the axe. They took the axe. That Who cares about the one sword? of the scavengers just drops the sword and runs off after the axe. Yeah. Like, let me have a try at it or whatever. So he's lucky they dropped that shit. And like the whole generosity thing is sort of like really driven home by what Barry Keegan's character or whatever saying, like it weren't enough, you know, like enough, it weren't enough. And literally everything that he's done up until that point, weren't enough. Yeah. He just throws a little penny at him or whatever. Yeah. Here's a a shekel. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this could be a musical. (laughs) (gasps) Oh, <laughs> oh my god but i i feel like and we'll probably talk about like the horror adjacency of it all like at some point in this conversation but it's really peppered in and i feel like that that first like real trippy scene of seasons changing to bleached bones and whatnot like is just another it's our first 15 minutes of this movie and there's already two skeletons that's right <laughs> <laughs> one like in a little cage and we're about to get a third one pointing the way <laughs> that's right but the best one of all Right. And so he, of course, goes after trying to get his, you know, horse, axe, you know, everything else that he needs. For I think, <laughs> you know, and so he gets to that cottage, right, which is kind of the creepiest part of the movie because it's at night it's misty. Mm-hmm. And then it's like empty and you can tell it's been empty for a long time. He sleeps and you're kind of worried because it's really dark. This is one of my pet fees in horror movies where they still light everything with like X-Files lighting or something else. You know, even inside houses, and this does not do that. This is a dark, dark scene. And if you don't have your TV settings, you're not going to be able to see shit. Nope. So she, he gets woken up, and she is there, and she's asking, who are you? 
And why are you here? Why are you in my bed? And you can repay me for this generosity, you know, by giving me the courtesy of finding my precious possession, which is, of course, my head. And that is the second virtue, courtesy, right? Mm -hmm. And so he has to find this lady's head, but asks her first what she'll give him for his service. And of course, she says, that's no nightly thing to ask. Why would you ever ask me that? I love the way she says it, too. Such a good moment in that movie. I love this woman. But he kind of this. This is also another theme in this movie is that basically he is a bunch of fucking walking red flags of a person mm-hmm. until someone tells him what to do. Yep. Arthur telling him to go on this fucking quest. You know, the guy telling him which direction to go in. This girl saying, why would you ask that? Do it anyway. And he does. And that theme continues through the entire movie. And I feel like the same can be said about a lot of people who like want to achieve greatness He is just not in charge of his own destiny. He feels like he wants the world to give him these chances. And he wants the world to to place the crown of chivalry and good and greatness on him without actually having to be that way. Well, that's the thing is, and he can't even fake like ignorance about what chivalry is because he was already asked to look around a room and he was like, what do you see? I see legends. Like he knows what it means to be chivalrous. You know what I mean? Does he though? I don't know. Because look at the world they built. I think he knows. He just doesn't know how to do it. Yeah. But I love it when he like brings the fucking skull up and gives it to her. I don't know. Like, it's just good and really, really fucking scary. It's the scariest moment in this movie for sure. Yeah. I remember being creeped out the first time I saw it after that. It didn't phase me at all, you know, or make even make me nervous. But I think the first time I ever watched it, I think it did. Thank God they pepper in that humor though. Yeah. And then he's underwater and it looks like stars or whatever. And then, and then it turns red and turns him upside down, you know, and he's got the skull in his hand. It's all very Hamlet and he goes back up and puts it and she's not there. Yeah. And then he puts it back on the bed and he finds – he sleeps again and he wakes up and his axe is there, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, he meets his fox friend again. What does the fox say? The fox says, my name is Morgana. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> What's your name, LeFay? So at this point, this is where he goes through the wilderness and he's the magic mushrooms and there's a storm and he sees the great knight, his greatest fear, you know, and then he sees like the giants and he's, he shouts out to the giants and he says, let me ride on your shoulder, I can get to my destination faster, you know, because he imagines himself that, you know, fearless knight. This is what a great person would do. They reach out, mm-hmm. you know, another version of Alicia Vikander here as one of the giants. And he shrieks back. And they're like, oh, I didn't mean to scare you. And they just move on their, you know, their way. And that's another, you know, and something that's indicative of him just not being the person that he's trying to be. Nope. Right. I like the giant's uh, call and response with the fox, too, though. I mean, because like he can't even communicate with them, but the fox can, obviously. Well, they understood what he was trying to say. They tried to grab, pick him up before he didn't he, understand like, them. He got creeped out or whatever. So how did he think he was going to get on their fucking shoulder? <laughs> going to fly? Express elevator to hell. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so he gets through the uh, the rainy, dark and stormy night to get to um, Frankenfurter's castle. <laughs> There's a light. <laughs> the grill shaped light <laughs> over at the Lord's face. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about that joke. <laughs> Dirty, evil, naughty Zoot shining her grail-shaped light again. <laughs> My biggest takeaway from watching The Green Knight was that I really, really want to rewatch Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Right. And so uh, get to the castle. I have a theory, uh, which doesn't really matter for the meaning of the movie, but I feel like the Lord and Lady were probably some sort of summoned fae uh, oh, or, yeah. you know, acting under the guidance and the will 
of Gawain's mother, Morgana, uh, the lord of the castle, straight up is a bear in silhouette when he first sees him. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, the next day, everyone's human, you know, but um, they already know his story. They know who he is. Uh, even he doesn't believe that that's possible that far away from Camelot. Um, the animal that the Lord catches at the end is not normal. It is huge and has spikes if you're paying attention mm-hmm. on the end of it. The game of exchange, like give me anything that you that is given to you in this castle. You know, and he asked, what could possibly be given to me that it doesn't already belong to you? And he's like, you'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's kind of a fairy thing to do, right? Everyone also seemed to be doppelganger of other characters. The Lord is obviously the Green Knight. Uh, you know, the lady is obviously, you know, uh, Essel. Yep. You know, and the the woman in there is obviously his watching mother, you know, et cetera. And so, um, you know, there's also a green monologue. She's like, why green? And then she continues to explain why green. <laughs> you know, talking about the inevitability of life and, of course, the inevitability of death. That's right. And that you know, all of civilization will fall to it. It's inevitable. And it's a really, really cool fucking monologue. It really is a good monologue. And then of course his mother or, you know, <clears throat> sorry, these, these, uh, these people, the Lord and lady or the lady herself does a regift on the belt, which he spooches all over. And he has to, it's kind of like a final check, which he just barely gets by with his, the skin of his teeth. If not at all. Why are you undertaking this quest? Is it for honor? What does, you know, does honor me actually mean anything? And the Lord kind of gently mocks the idea that a few honorable deeds or great deeds, however you want to describe it with words, could possibly make someone actually honorable, right? That it's all kind of meaningless, right? Unless you like actually feel that way yourself. And this is where the final two, or I guess the next two virtues come in. So is it really deeds? I mean, if we're talking about like chivalrous, right? Yes. Like, the, why always, do you do quests? Yeah, you know, uh, right. To be so, honorable. <clears throat> like all these questions are like the perfect thing to ask, especially of him, because they're trying to get him to understand. Or to obviously, think. yeah, is that like it's not about like the quest, right? It's the intention behind it, right? Mm-hmm. People do things all the time, and it's just like if you're doing something because you're expected to be looked upon as being good. Right. Or is this something you really want? Yeah. Is this something that would really make you happy? Are you checking off a box? Or you want it because everyone in your society has built this construct as an idea? And what has knighthood done for your country? What has what has King Arthur actually done but build it up and look at its collapse as it dilapidates in front of your eyes, you know? And I feel like all of these things, all of these questions that are kind of like thrown at him at this particular juncture is on a much larger scale could be seen as like a view on unorganized religion or at least Christianity in general. Maybe, you but know? I mean, it's at the same time, it's like, I think it's a little unfair to Gawain to be like, a, you know, of course he wants to be king. Who wouldn't want to be king? Yeah. And all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he can be if he just reaches out and goes through the goddamn motions. And that's exactly what he thinks he's, he's doing rather than actually being it. And then that is true. So with chastity... Of course, the lady of the castle, he gives into temptation. He resists at first, but as soon as she tells him he wants it, yep, he does what he's told. Because he does. Again, right? And then with fellowship, the lord of the castle, uh, of course, he cheated uh, you know, with his wife and lies about it. Mm-hmm. And then leaves in disgrace. And then he does let the lord kiss him when the lord is like, hey, so you didn't give me. You're leaving without giving me what you were given. And then finally takes a kiss, right? 
But, you know, if he was really doing it, he'd get it handy. But even though that's not really fully, you know, what he got. So um, his refusal to go further, you know, is passive at best. He says, unhand me, let us go our ways very softly, you know. And he does. And he releases the fox and they go. But he says, if you come back, we won't be here. Because, of course, they aren't real. Really hope that there's some cut scene of him giving the water handy. <laughs> hmm. I'm really into Edgerton. Best. Edging Edgerton. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where's that film? <laughs> Edging Edgerton. If you're listening, if you're listening, Dan, <laughs> make a sequel. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, this is when he, he goes on his way. He's told by the fox, hey, you know, this is as far as you need to go. Uh, you don't actually have to go. If you go any further, it's your death, essentially, or it could be your death. And so that kind of makes me think of certain things about this mother that I'll get into a little bit later, because I feel I really do feel like that fox is the familiar. Yeah. Right. And so I feel like that's the easy thing to take away from this movie is that the fox is, you know, working for the mom or is the mom. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's fairly way. obvious. Yeah. Right. And so that's how these stories work anyway. And so. We move into our our epilogue, you know, where he is confronting the Green Knight. He's there. He shows up and he is flinching. And finally, he just runs away. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, we find like, what does his life look like having learned nothing from this? And he gets to live out, you know, the masculine power fantasy he always dreamed of, you know, or is at least expected to dream of. He lives out a life where he never has to be personally vulnerable again, like he did constantly during that quest. But everything around him gets stripped away, and all that's left is his own regret. You know, an honorable king does not marry prostitutes, so he throws Essel away. She has his baby. He pays her a few shekels like some sort of monster yeah, and steals the baby, right? Yeah. Uh, an honorable king must make war, you know? And, of course, he has son his child dies because of it and right. we have to kind of witness his life and he witnesses his own life failing utterly yeah he gets to be king yeah he gets to wage war yeah he gets to marry a queen and do all this other stuff but was he happy was this you know he ends up being reviled and was it worth it no it wasn't none of it was nathan wellman a video journalist that i happened to uh, listen to pointed out this quote from the book thief which of course is also a movie that i still want you to see i haven't seen it i know i want to Quote, I've seen so many men over the years who think they're running at other young men. They're not. They're running at me. And that quote is by death Oof. because death is telling the story. And so I feel like that's a perfect quote for this movie. He really learned nothing. He could have had so many takeaways, even if he ran away from the Green Knight, right? Which in this particular moment he has. He did. And he gets yeah. to live out his life with repercussions of it. Right. Or one possible repercussion of it. And he literally learned nothing from this quest. Like not a thing. He had to, you know, well, even at the very end, which tells me the, the magic has kind of taken its own thing, which is probably why Morgana was like, do not do this. Yeah. Do not go to the Green Knight. It will probably mean your death. Because even in that end of that vision, his mother herself leaves him. Her own machination of getting him to on the throne, mm -hmm. you know, making him something of himself and doing all these other things and giving her grandchildren and all that ends in absolute ruin and disgrace. And she ends up leaving his side as well. And I don't think that's something that she would ever want to show him in a vision at the end of this game. No, obviously <laughs> not. But and also, and she also can't do everything for him. You know what I mean? But like, which tells me to some extent that the Green Knight is a real thing in this story. 
Yeah, I, I don't think that it's something that she just completely conjured or made up. I, I, I think, think it's something she invoked. Yeah it's, yeah, it's more of an invoke thing, right? That's what I'm getting out of it. Not that it's that important, right? I don't want to get too stuck up on the the specificities of Nog here. Yeah, throw that word at me. My God, I'm still <laughs> having PTSD from that episode. Specificity there. <laughs> But yeah, I I just feel like in the moments where he's at the Green Chapel waiting for the Green Knight to awaken, you you do get the sense that the Green Knight is something that is a otherworldly at least. Well, yeah, you start to see the other faces of people on his journey inside the face of the Green Knight. But I think the Green Knight is just everything. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. And and there's some interesting things about like where does Morgana's plan start and end, right? And so there's some ambiguity there, which I love. Right. Well, maybe that's why she tries to stop him. You know what I mean? Because like she, she can sort of manipulate things to a point, but she cannot control everything. And the Green Knight is yeah. everything. Yeah. Right? So like beyond this point, I can't do anything to save you. Yeah. Really. Maybe that's exactly what it is. Because that's a trope too. Beyond yeah. this point, you're on your own. Right. And so maybe the girdle, the magic of the girdle, was able to show him and go all the way to the end of his death and then reset just like it kind of did or the magic or whatever it is did back when he was, you know, thieved, mm-hmm. whatever you want to believe there. So, you know, he's finally, after seeing all of this loss of his children and everyone leaving his side and everyone despising him, you know, even though he had become king and everything else, you know, he finally is ready to cast off these social constructs of honor, whatever you say or think is, or people say or think is masculinity unrealistic expectations that no human can really consistently reach his journey must ultimately be to to give in to the ambiguity of being human to discover his own vulnerability and accept himself for who he is and find out whether that's enough or not piety right is the last virtue self-knowledge he's scolded by the green knight for flinching and ultimately complies with the game one last time you know, and he, he asks before even that happens, he asks, is this really all there is? And maybe he was expecting more, felt entitled to more meaning to his life, you know? And the audience is probably asking the same thing at this point because the, the movie basically just ends, right? It's eluded that he gets completely beheaded. And we could have gotten an ending where Gawain goes back to Essel, you know, after all of that, who survives and goes back to Essel and says, you were right. None of this is important. Good is enough. I don't need to be great. I know what I want and it's you or some bullshit, you know? We don't need that. Right. But that's how a typical movie would have ended, right? You know, it was like, here's the lesson he learned and here's the happy ending. Right. But, you know, or at least the Disneyfied version of this or, you know, the non heady version of this. But no, the moral of the story is not knowing yourself, not being okay with yourself, not becoming a better version of yourself versus a version that other people or society wants or places upon you can and does mean death for some people or at least lifelong misery. I'm starting to think of gay people and trans people, suicides, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, when you can't be yourself or cannot be allowed to be yourself, that's that can be dangerous. And it's certainly dangerous for him and there are consequences for trying to be something you're not. Hence off with your head. So do you really think that the Green Knight cut his head off? Uh yeah, Lowry did state that he wanted the possibility of Gawain being beheaded to be a positive thing, right? He faces his fate bravely. And there's honor and integrity in that. He received that blow that he was dealt and all is set right within the universe of the film. In other words, the purpose of the vision of Godwin's future was to show how being beheaded could be a happy ending or at least a better alternative than what awaited him if he survived. I think I like to like believe in that as well. I feel like ultimately 
Like if he lost his head at that exact moment, he was just like, I like, I don't know what I have to go back to anyway. Like I've already seen how bad things could possibly be. Yeah. I would like to think that he could go back and live a normal life and not have to be king if he could choose that. But if he feels like he's being positioned and cornered through magic or other means, maybe this is also him being free of his mother. If I'm going to be forced to live this life that is so damaging, I get to be king, but it's so damaging to myself and everyone around me, I would rather be dead and the world would be better off for it. And he makes that decision. That is where he becomes a knight. Yeah. Yeah. At that exact moment. Or maybe he just thought about, my God, the journey home is going to be very long and I just don't want to do it. Fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) Lowry describes the film as being about the importance of comporting oneself with integrity and goodness over being concerned with one's legacy. Yes. I mean, I would say that's pretty obvious. Yeah, that's like the very top level. And he's not going to explain anything else because he's famously He's he's not going to do that. But we've done that for him. Yeah. Uh, So writing for Vulture, Alison Wilmore said that the film is, quote, is about someone who keeps waiting for external forces to turn him into the gallant, heroic figure he believes he should be. And added, travel as far as you like, but you'll never be able to leave yourself behind. Wherever you go, there you are. I mean, that is this movie. And of course, the end, end, the uh, post credits, the little girl puts the puts on the crown, and maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for a change. And it would take Britain many, many years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect segue into like the maybe the overall theme for the for the movie, which is you know maybe not the the most important one, but definitely a consistent statement throughout the entire movie is really what I would describe as the horror of masculinity. I mean, for sure. But continue. I want to see your thoughts on this. So Arthur at Christmas Court, one of his quotes is, this morn I awoke and I saw a land shaped by your hands. Right? And he's saying that very reverently. Right? But we know that there's fires, there's hanging skeletons, there's war and devastation. There's like dusty landscape. There's thieves. There's whores. That's what we see. Yeah. Right? And this movie was marketed, you know, as another medieval fantasy action movie and so all of these things are tropes kind of like pulled up in their heads we expect you know first night style camelot and you know tall and masculine even if he's 80 years old arthur and everything else and we super expect like the level of fantasy that excalibur brought us in the 80s for sure it had that feel about it even in the trailer and so i think that's part of why you know other than the end i think that's part of why people had a problem with it is because it's kind of emasculating uh their vision of a very heroic story that they've had their entire lives, right? Broe Deschanel says, action films offer a safe space for men, a low culture comfort, not unlike rom-coms for women, with each one fulfilling a set of familiar cliches, the emotionally detached hero with his unwavering moral code, beaten down until his moment of reckoning. When he realizes he has to fight his way out of unbeatable odds with nothing but his grit to save him, the unexpected partnership, the grizzled mentor who bites it in the second act, the antagonist who threatens the stability of the social order but is often actually kind of justified, who our hero must defeat to realign the status quo, each one of these comfortable tropes, the adrenaline of violence, the thrill of the chase, brings viewers a step closer to that unconscious gratification. Everything about the Green Knight is designed to wreck that safe space. This is not a heroic action movie, and Gawain himself absolutely cannot come to terms with that. No, he cannot. And he is not a heroic figure, at least not in this film. Yeah, this is the story 
of a man discovering his own vulnerability and insignificance in spite of his expectations and entitlements. How much of our gender identity comes from us versus the world around us? Is there something very wrong with the kind of man this world wants Gawain to become? His mother seems to think it's performative. I mean, reading other Arthurian legends on top of this, along with her actions in this film, she doesn't seem to view knighthood as a proof of honor or chivalry at all, but possibly as a mantle for ambition, politics, and opportunism. Just check these boxes and you'll be a knight. Okay. You know, and most of them are. They're politicians with armor, right? I don't think she's simply trying to push him out of the house. She also might be trying to get him to grow up a bit and realize that his ideas of greatness are just theater. And that real honor and greatness, if there is even, you know, such a thing, can't be placed on someone that should be self-realizing. A hundred percent. And I think that we've been talking about that throughout every single step of this movie, right? I think at some point we've like talked about how this could be seen in like today's society. And I feel like the people who aspire to be great are doing it for the exact wrong reasons, or maybe you have been taught to do that. Well, I keep seeing like these YouTube videos, like the men aren't all right. And I see like articles about like the, the great collapse of, of masculinity and men and male friendships and, you know, and like the rise of Walmart shooters, mm-hmm. you know, and this crisis of masculinity, especially in like, you know, uh, Western society and certainly in America, you know, and, and I'm wondering if all of that is kind of tied in with this, which is like, <clears throat> you know, men, you've got to be okay with the ambiguity of being human the meaninglessness of it, the lack of well-defined roles, and to be yourselves. The yep. 1950s just aren't coming back ever. They're not. And the ideal man in action movies or any movie just doesn't exist. Just be human. You're enough. You know, you don't have to step into this role as a provider or a protector or, you know, the stoic masculine who can't have an emotional reaction to anything. Those are impossible standards and they're destroying you, right? Well, and I feel like step by step, at least – I hope this, that as, as every generation gets further and further away from what the 1950s were, right? And I think that's a really good example for us to look at like what an, an American version of masculinity or what a man should do or gender norms and things like that sort of like originated or at least were hit home in American culture. Like we're getting away from that a little bit as like that generation starts to die off. Yeah. And I think Lowry has a real stance on that sort of performative masculinity mm-hmm. as being very unnatural and yep. out of step with the natural world, which brings into mind the whole dichotomy of the Green Knight here with yep. Camelot and seeing that dying kingdom mm-hmm. and all of their ideals kind of collapsing around them based on this theater. I mean, how often have we talked about like toxic masculinity and other movies that we've watched and talked about on this podcast, right? right? Like it never ends well for any of those characters, right? Nope. And in, in fact, we're, we're oftentimes like pointing out the flaws in them. And this movie is completely no different. And this, this person, this character of Gawain, like doesn't necessarily like fit all the norms of everyone who would be seen as like masculine, right? around him, like describing other people as legends, but he himself has none to tell, you know? Yeah. And maybe he's looking around and taking the wrong lessons because Arthur doesn't seem like a, a super, you know, diehard kind of action hero. You know not at I mean? that particular time of this movie, you know, but like, th- that's not what this movie is about. No. You know, maybe it's about taking the lessons that Arthur is trying to teach him, you know, it's, or even his yeah. wife, like listen to the women in this movie. Oh, my yeah. God. You well, know, for is the only one talking sense. Well, and then the even, mom is the one with the only like sees the real world and is doing something about it for better or worse. But even Guinevere says like, don't, you know, don't sit amongst them idly or yeah. whatever. And you that know could what go mean? either way. Yeah. You know, e- 
either way, but I think like cunningly, she's saying like, do something different. Like, what do you see? I see legends. And she's like, yeah, but you don't have to be exactly that. I think you're probably right. But I think they're kind of stuck in their own story too, right? They set up this whole thing and they're kind of victims of their own story as well. Yeah. Right. They're dying and sickly, you know, and have these expectations of all the knights at the round table and they're placing them on this person that they want to kind of take over their role once they're gone. Even the knights of the round table are dying in their own like past, right? Because they have a natural wish for immortality, essentially. Well, and they have nothing left to prove. They're already immortal in some sort of way. They're being called legends. They don't have to stand up to the Green Knight. The only person who has anything to prove in this movie is Gawain. It's, so. it's construct. And we're just kind of, I don't know, we peel back a few layers, I think, and we place some things on this movie, maybe. Uh, at least like a spin or a flavor. But I think everything we talked about is legit in this movie. Oh, for and sure. there's probably more. We're just scratching the surface in some cases. I would think so. You know? But, well, just um, like anybody else, I mean, like your experience is going to play a part in how you look at anything. Oh, yeah. Right? It's through your own lens. Right. Yeah. You know? And so I think that like we as gay men have grown up in a certain kind of way and have often been looked upon as like being less masculine, whether that's true or not. Yeah. Or and I don't want to like that. place any like weird ideas that, you know, there's something negative about masculinity or negative no, of course not. or positive about femininity. It is what it is. But when either or anything itself gets toxic yeah. and out of reach and constructy and doesn't serve whoever's trying to attain it, that's when there's a problem. And I do think this movie has plenty to say about that. Well, it's not something that has to be attained, no. you know? I mean, ultimately. So, you know, the God I even don't. <laughs> <laughs> or you just don't have to have it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I mean, like, ultimately, people are people, to quote the Muppets Take Manhattan. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Do you have some fun facts for me? Barely. <laughs> okay. So the voice of the opening narration is actually the voice of director David Lowry and his wife, Augustine Frizzell, mixed together. Ooh. Frizzle. Frizzle. Okay. Miss Frizzle? Essel. Played by Alicia Vikander, of course, wears bells on her shroud because during the Middle Ages, it was common for people who were considered unclean, such as prostitutes, to be forced to wear bells on their clothing to warn others of their presence. She has her hair cropped for the same reason. In medieval London and many other places, prostitutes had their hair cut short as a public humiliation and punishment. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. Do you hear a bell ringing? Right. <laughs> Do I hear syphilis? Oh. Oh. Uh, prior to setting out on his journey, the belt created by Gawain's mother and the three other witches has within it carvings of three runes from left to right. Thurisaz, giants, signifying strong one, tool or weapon, defense or protection, algis, elk, elk, signifying protection, higher self, divinity, teaching, and Radho, ride. Journey, vehicle, righteousness, inner compass, nobility, and the path. Well, that's just this movie completely. Mm. Especially Algis. <laughs> Elk. Anyway, St. Winifred does not actually appear in the original poem, but the tradition surrounding her tells that she was beheaded by her fiancé when she broke their engagement to become a nun. A healing spring arose at the spot where her head fell. Her head and body were later reunited by her brother, St. Bueno. St. Bueno? St. Bueno. Hell yeah. <laughs> Ralph Innocent and Kate Dickey, of course, previously co-starred in The Witch, 2015, another A24 film. I feel like anytime there's a British movie by A24, one or both of them yep. are in it. Yep. Yeah. 
Sean Harris and Kate Dickey obviously previously worked together on Prometheus. I forgot Katie Dickey was in that too. Yeah, I love this actress. I just do. She's she in has, everything, yeah. She's just a very like signature look about her, you know what I mean? And, and yet she still is eclectic uh, characters. That's right. Yeah. I mean, she can do a lot of different things, but she has a very recognizable face. And I just I don't just love her. I love her in The Witch. I love her in this. I liked her in Prometheus. So come on. Yeah. They tried to create subtle humor and lightness into the otherwise dark script. And so Lowry stated that near the end of the film, he directed Innocent to portray the Green Knight as Santa Claus. I mean, kind of. Like that very last line in the movie is super fucking cheeky, you know? Also the smirk. So before we get into your questions, I have a question for you. Oh my God, that is unheard of. And no. No, what is it? <laughs> well, I wanted to kind of come back and bookend because we had discussed um, how much you had already kind of gotten from the subtext versus what I might have possibly uncovered, if anything. Was there anything that surprised you in any of that? Yeah, a lot of it, actually. So I feel like there are a lot of things that are on the surface of this movie. You know, I obviously his quest in trying to, you know, attain chivalry is is there like through the entirety of it. Like, honestly, I didn't think about anything involving like masculinity or like the consequences of it or attaining it or like even the desire to have it. And I think a lot of that stems from my first watch of this movie, which I already talked about, you know, under the circumstances was the wrong way to watch this film. I took away next to nothing the last time I watched this movie. Really? Yeah. Wow. I was incredibly bored with it, in fact. And like, it was the second watch that I was just like, okay, like this movie is is really, really good and has has a lot of message to it. Like this is not something that you want to watch in any sort of like muddled state. You need to be able to pay attention. And a really good message. It's kind of depressing at the end if you really think about this character, but this character is kind of trash. You know, and you can take from his lessons and his epiphany at the end and apply it to your own life in a really yeah. interesting and special way that's not often played out in any film I can think of. And so it's really unique. Um, you know, if I hadn't complained about this movie, it's that that message isn't more apparent. Although I do love things that make me think. I like things that make me think too. And I hate it when there's a message that's so obvious that you're beaten over the head with it by the yeah, end of it. Tough, like tough thing to balance. Right? Yeah. I mean, so it needs to be, there needs to be just enough. You need to be able to sort of like understand where it's coming from and still be able oh. to think about it days later. I mean, and we're still, I mean, I could talk for days more about like, what is the meaning of like the, the photography at the castle, you know, and why is that there? It's so out of place technologically. And what does it actually signify compared to the portraiture that was done previously in the film that he has painted of him? And there's a lot to un- unpack and a lot more areas. And there's just like a little bit more gold to mine everywhere throughout this movie. And so I really like if you are interested at all in kind of unpacking and thinking about things, this is an excellent movie to do that in because it just keeps like I've seen this five times and I'm still thinking about certain things about this movie that I know I'm just scratching the surface of. And that's from a visual standpoint, for sure. You know, I mean, the way that we sort of tackled it in this, this episode or this conversation about the movie was solely based on plot. And I feel like talking about this movie from that standpoint, as it comes from a piece of like medieval literature, right. means it's a little bit more universal. Yeah. 
So, I mean, like, I think that the, the points that we talked about and the takeaways and the themes are something that can be found in, in, in the movie or in like the text or even just some other variations of it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this conversation I was very surprised by. In fact, I didn't quite know what to expect from this conversation. And I'm really glad that we had it, actually. Uh, but we have another couple questions to ask. No. And we'll start <laughs> And we'll start with, is The Green Knight a horror movie? In part. It's very adjacently. Yeah. Say. There's definitely, I mean, there's monsters, there's beheadings, there's blood and guts and uh, multiple skeletons. <laughs> uh, certainly existential dread and, and horror. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, dark magic, you know, things like that. It's all over this. And there's some tone there and there's some in the music and certainly some in the cinematography. It's just not consistently horror, right? It's adjacently horror in moments consistently throughout the film. So it's hard one to pin down. This is kind of a genre bending movie for yeah. sure. You could I, ask it if it's a drama or a comedy in some places. You know, It's all those things, you know, and I, I would say that this is a horror movie. Yeah. I mean, adjacently based on like some visuals, right. And like visual storytelling for sure. Um, it certainly looks and feels and sounds like a horror movie at times. But I think thematically, it's also a horror movie. I think the things, his quest itself and the things that he's having to grapple with as a human being and the world that he lives in is quite horrific. And I think that we've mentioned many times in this podcast that like sometimes the horror of the real world as it creeps into to fiction is just as frightening as anything you possibly look at. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, this is a horror movie for sure. Were you scared while watching The Green Knight? I think it was a little... Um nervous in a scared way <laughs> um, during that cottage scene. The first time we watched it, you know, it was so dark, which I love um, a couple other moments. Maybe uh, the first time you, uh, you know, see the green Knight and you hear the very, very beginning of this movie opens like a horror movie with a, like a head lighting on fire and like mm-hmm. the demonic voice, like Pazuzu, you know, talking straight to the audience. You know, there's a lot of moments that kind of keep you off balance in a horrific way. And I love that. Well, there are moments like that that happen in this movie that happen in a lot of A24 esque movies or even movies by A24. I mean, like, there are moments that look like hereditary in this movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are some moments that are actually like quite scary to me. Um, I wouldn't say that I was like terrified watching it, but even some scenes in the castle when he's with the Lord and the Lady, you know, like the. Creeped the, out. Yeah. I mean, because you have that, the blindfolded blind mother, like walking around, you know, and everything is not quite what it seems. And that's kind of frightening. It's given a really dreamlike quality. I exactly. love the view of Alicia Vikander's character out in the yard and he's looking out the window and you see this blur, mm-hmm. not quite right reflection of her in the window. Yep. You know, like a lot of little details like that that keep you a little off balance and wondering what the fuck am I looking at? Or you really don't know what the fuck is going to happen. Yeah. You know, you're like, where is this going and what's what's going on? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so it's moments like that that give you some sort of like dread while watching it. And also, I mean, like he's leading toward the end of a quest, you know, and what's going to happen when he finally gets to the Green Chapel. And it turns out to be a little bit more life affirming than scary. But who knows leading up to it? Right. Um, out of five stars, what would you rate the Green Knight? Okay, so I gave this five stars. Of course, <laughs> I was actually thinking last night, though, or the night before, or whatever we watched this a couple days ago. Um, thinking about dropping it to four and a half. What did you give it the first viewing? Do you remember? I think I gave it a four. Okay, you know, and then it's gone up to five three times straight. <laughs> and then I was thinking about four and a half, and I'm like, I really still. 
don't, it's hard for me to articulate what I have a problem with at this point Mm -hmm. in this movie. And I think the thing I have a problem with is that 50% score. I wish it was accessible to more people because happiness is only true happiness if it's shared. And it's hard to share this movie. That's wise. That's a really wise thing to say about this movie. Because the first time that we watched it together, I gave it three and a half stars. I have to be careful how I recommend this movie. And I wish I didn't because I love it so much. Not even just careful how you recommend it, but to who. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's not for everybody. Like, obviously, I wish it could be because I think it's just sort of a universal theme to it's this. It's like loving heroin and then trying to, you know, sell it to your friend who's afraid of needles, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, God damn it, heroin. <laughs> Wait, maybe that's a really horrible Why weren't you more accessible? <laughs> Why can't I share you with my friends and loved ones? <laughs> Thanks, heroin. On this rewatch, it went up an entire star. I gave this four and a half stars on this watch. I enjoyed this movie so much more the second time around. I'm shocked that you were bored and you gave it a three and a half the first time. I was so bored. I was just like, I thought this movie was never going to end. When I watched it the first time. And why did you give it a three and a half? Well, I think you probably still recognize the aesthetic. And of course, you loved the monologue the first time too. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought it was beautiful for sure, you know, but I was just like hideously bored the first time that I watched it. And this time I was not. I felt like the movie moved along at a really clip speed even. I was just like, why would I think this movie is boring? It's moving pretty quickly. Like the only kind of like slow part is that trippy moment, you know, from the mushrooms to the giants. And then it picks up again. I was like, the movie itself moves really fast. And like, I was surprised at what I had taken away from it on the second viewing because I didn't take away much the first time. Yeah. You know, and I, it could have been expectation. Like I was ready for something a little bit more fantasy like than what I got. But on this watch, I think that it's fantasy enough. I think that it checks off a lot of boxes. And I think for people who like that particular genre and didn't like this movie the first time they watched it, go back and watch it again. Yeah. Because it's good. Like, you should never you should never discount a movie so fully that you would never watch it again anyway. You know? It had to be a really shit-tacular movie to be like, never again will I watch that. Finally. <laughs> who's the hottest guy in the Green Knight? Dev Patel. Dev Patel. What the fuck? What a stupid question you want to ask. <laughs> a, unless you're like, Edging Edgerton, you know what I mean? And he's not even that hot in this movie. Or a tree humper. Or, for Ralph Edison. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's just the voice of Ralph Edison. Uh, Dev yeah. Patel's really fucking foxy in this movie, pun intended. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there are some scenes, and he's not even like my type of guy, really, but like shirtless Dev Patel in this movie, or even just like a little bit of like cleavage Dev Patel. I was just like, hey. So, <laughs> like, hey, Gawain. Yeah, but even then, it's not. You know, they are very intentional with how they portray the masculine form in this movie because they could have easily gotten like some fucking hot ass motherfucker. But they wanted someone that was kind of goofy, but you still took seriously. Yeah. Very endearing. Super endearing. You know, but, you know, still kind of a masculine form. And so like they they really fucking micro balanced how this was cast. And I think Dev Patel is uh, a perfect casting and he just knocked it out of the park with the expectation that was built for him. And I think he's just cute. Yep. So win-win. What a cute asshole. Because <laughs> there's nothing in this movie 
that is good for him. He does nothing good in this movie. He's like a walking red flag. Like yeah. he is just an asshole the entire fucking movie and he fails utterly. But yet you're still, he's still endearing because it's Dev fucking Patel. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Like Any other actor probably would have failed utterly at that. You're like, why am I watching this douchebag? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on The Green Knight. As always, we would love to know what you think about this movie and you think about our conversation about it. Go and find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, or formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972 972- Six 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 seven seven three three. Tell me a sex story so that I might know thee better intimately. <laughs> Turn off that grill shape light. <laughs> Give us a call. <laughs> Gawain! You don't have to turn on that grill light. <laughs> <laughs> Also, guys, we like getting five-star reviews, so head over to Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or really anywhere you can review us. Leave us a rating. Tell us why you like us. We're going to read that on the next Shooting the Flames. Stay tuned for next week when we cover Exit Wounds. What was it? Rare Exports. (laughs) Rare Exports. (laughs) That's right. Rare Exports. And then uh, we might be shoving the latest Black Christmas down your throat. We're giving you a poll. We haven't decided yet. Something over on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers. Get over our bonus content and perhaps help us choose our bonus content for December. All right, Chris. I think it's time to go off and... Have some mushroom-fueled fever dreams of the Green Knight. I have some tea. You want some? Sure. That's right. Maybe a fox will talk to us. We can finally figure out what the fox says. And have some sweet dreams. If you came across those slimy-ass tiny mushrooms in a cave, would you eat them? No. No. I don't care how hungry I was. I'd be like, I'm not eating that. I don't know. But I know what I'm saying when I wake up this Christmas. Crisis born. I'm looking for the closest whore. <laughs> I'm going to tell her Christ is born. I'm right across the street. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally, I'm texting you first thing in the morning. I'm saying Christ is born. <laughs> whore. <laughs> Turn off that red light. <laughs>